0: Good morning, River City. Our time is a little bit shorter today, although I don't know that my sermon ended up being any shorter, so good luck with that. Um, But for good reason. Uh, We celebrate. We love hearing testimonies of God's gracious work in the lives of His people. We want to celebrate that. These are great proclamations of the gospel, the reminders that, that Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who purchased us by His own blood, this very same one is continuing by the Holy Spirit to work in our lives transformation and growth and fashioning us into the image of Christ, that he who began this work in us will carry it through all the way till the end. That's what we're celebrating in, in things like baptism. So that's, uh, that's a good reminder this morning, right? Amen? Amen. So let's make the most of whatever time we do have, shall we? Uh, Turn your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. The text will be on the screen this morning as well, but I would love for you to follow along. Last week, um, we read Zephaniah chapter 1, which comes before chapter 2. We read a a few verses in chapter 2. And one of the things we looked at is this multifaceted judgment of God that is coming. And not just coming for the wicked out there, but actually starting with God's own people first. See, all of our our cries for fairness and for justice, all of our focus tends to be on that sin out there, that evil and that wickedness. And what we often miss is that, well, God will deal with all of that. And we'll talk about some of that here this morning. He actually starts at home with his covenant people first. That's what we unpacked a little last week. If you're able to follow us online and if you want to go back and read through Zephaniah chapter 1, that's kind of the, the flavor of the first chapter of Zephaniah. Today becomes kind of a part two on that of sorts. We'll follow a little similar path. The prophet Zephaniah, this little tiny book, has received this oracle, this word of the Lord the words of God for him to give to God's people. And he's calling them to consider God's holiness, God's righteousness. That that means his perfection. Calling God's people to consider God's justice. Telling them that God will bring justice for wickedness and outlining for them what it actually looks, looks like. And that this judgment that God will bring, because God is good and always does what is right and always deals with evil, should not make God's people feel just happy and comfortable in their position. What we'll see as we read this passage is the far-reaching universality of the justice of God. And for us, questions come to the surface. Do we tend to bristle against what seems harsh or what seems final? Do we get maybe comfortable on the other side thinking, well, at least it's not directed at us. It's directed at someone else. Do we see it as good that God deals with sin the way he does? So I want to ask this question. How do we respond to God's justice? Are we repulsed by it? Like that's too heavy and too much, or are we a little bit relieved? Like at least God's dealing with that evil out there. See, I think the, the big idea for us today is when we look at God's word, when we get a glimpse of this expansive, universal justice of God, it should cause in us two things, humility and hope. We're going to unpack that here today. So let's read the, the text together. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 3, verse 8. So that'll be on your screen as well. I'm actually going to start back at verse 3, which was the last verse we read last week, just to springboard us into verse 4. Here's the word of the Lord for us today, starting in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Verse 4. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon. And Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Verse 8. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. Verse 12, You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Verse 13, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This is God's holy and sufficient word. Amen? As I said when we began, chapter 2 is, is a bit like a part 2 to a part 1, to chapter 1. God is laying out his case against the wicked. And he's outlining his plan. He's giving almost a little bit of a play-by-play to how he's going to about, uh, go, go about accomplishing this judgment. And when we think about the word judgment, we might bristle a little. Judgment is not a popular concept in pretty much any time in history, particularly in our day. Certainly not today. Well, partially. See, I think we actually love it when someone else gets judged because we think they deserve it. We just hate it when it points back at us. Am I accurate in that assumption? Let me back up one step and take it out of judgment realm and just bring it into the land of watching football. I checked this analogy with a few people. They said it works. We're going to go with it. Think about, maybe you don't like football. Just follow me, okay, for a moment. Your favorite team completes a fantastic play, a big pass down the field, right? This this is going to secure the game. It's going to put you ahead. It's going to make the comeback, whatever it is. Right, picture in your head, your favorite team makes the big play. And upon its completion, you pump your fists and you're excited, except there's a flag on the play. And the ref comes out and says, that play doesn't count. The offensive receiver pushed off the defender. It's offensive pass interference. Play doesn't count. Yards don't count. Loss of down. Start again. And you're thinking, well, how fair is that? Like those two guys were like pushing each other all the way down the field. And you get mad, maybe you scoff out loud or throw something at the television. Maybe you don't get that invested as we do in our house sometimes, but you're like, come on, that was a garbage call, right? Because it went against your team. Or maybe it was like this. Your team's playing defense, trying the hardest they can to hold the lead. And the opposing team makes this big play downfield. Oh, but he drops the ball. And you're relieved for a moment because, yes, they didn't get it, except that flag comes out. And you're thinking, what is this call? And they say, actually, well, it was pass interference on the defense. And so you, they get the yardage, and they're about to score. And what's frustrating to you is because you know the opposing quarterback has a history in the league of, at the, in the ends of games, just chucking the ball down the field and going, uh, hoping, 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 for a pass interference call i'm not naming names but you're standing there probably up from your couch and you're just mad right because your team is on the back end the bad end of those calls and you see them as unfair judgment calls but if that went the other direction you probably just smile and keep your mouth shut right because those calls went the way of your team. See, I think we love it a little bit when, the, when we see what we determine is fair or just being done to others. When the other side, whatever that happens to be, loses, and when they get what they deserve. But I think we, we bristle. We actually hate it when that spotlight gets pointed back at us, when our weaknesses are exposed, See, Zephaniah is kind of like a big old spotlight shining on sin and wickedness and, and, and the worst of humanity. And it promises God will deal with it. He addresses it. He's going to deal with it. In fact, chapter 2 is kind of a map of God's judgment. Uh, he lays out in every direction exactly who and where and how. This is going to happen. So those are the kind of the two big ideas I want us to think through today in terms of categories. One is this universal judgment of God. I want us to see that here. But also, underneath this, what I hope we find is the unrelenting mercy of God that we also see. So we're going to look at both those things today. First, as I said, Zephaniah 2 is a lesson in geography as it relates to God's judgment, showing that nothing is outside of His justice. Um, you see that uh, the next slide, there's a, there's a map in there. Now, I don't know if you can totally see it, but our, the circle uh, is around Jerusalem. And out from Jerusalem, in, in all four directions, we see these other nations called out by name here in the text. We see uh, Philistia to the west, verses 4 through 7, Moab and Ammon uh, to the east, we see Cush to the south and Assyria to the north. And we're going to use this as our, a little bit of our road map. So let's start looking to the west, because that's what the text says in verses 4 through 7. It says, For Gaza shall be deserted, Ashkelon shall become a desolation, Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Akron Ik- shall be uprooted. Th- these are the Philistines. Longtime enemies of Israel, inhabiting the land of Canaan along the Mediterranean Sea. This is modern-day Gaza. All the way back past King David, you may have heard of this guy, tall guy named Goliath, who's a Philistine warrior. Back in the time of the the judges, the Philistines were a a ruthless, violent oppressor to God's people. They They took what they wanted by force. And so look at some of the language here directed at them. They shall be deserted. They shall become a desolation. They shall be driven out at noon. The, the picture there is they don't need a surprise attack or some kind of like military uh, uh, trickery. They're just going to kind of march through middle of the day, take you out before lunch. That's kind of the picture of this overwhelming devastation. they will be uprooted. There will be nothing left. Verse 5 says, woe to you, the word of the Lord is against you. That's the the picture we're given of what's going to happen to the Philistines. Verses 6 and 7 outline this even further. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures and meadows for shepherds. See, the Philistines were right on the coast of the Mediterranean. They had landlocked Judah, And so they were the go-between for for trade routes and economics and culture that was going inland, out through the Mediterranean, and then out to the other uh, cities along the sea. A commercial depot of sorts. But God had promised Canaan to his people. And the Philistines had moved in and taken it. And the Lord tells them, I'm going to turn your prosperity to pastures. Your golden coast for, it will become grazing land for sheep. There will be nothing left for you, is the picture. And what will be left won't even be inhabited by you. Verse 7 tells us the remnant of the house of Judah closes with this. For the Lord their God, speaking of his own people, will be, the Lord will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So save that. Save that little chunk of verse 7. We're going to come back to that. But we see clearly the judgment of the Lord is going to come for you to the west, you Philistines, west of Judah. Verses 8 through 11. Not just the west, but also to the east, to Moab. The Lord tells Zephaniah he has heard the taunts and the revilings of the Ammonites against his people. To revile? a great word. We don't use it enough. To revile is to abuse with criticism and shame. When someone is reviled, they've been criticized and shamed into oblivion. They delight in their bullying. They delight in their arrogance. They are self-exalted, prideful, conceited, right? If you were to apply this to a person, it's a bully who knows there's a bully and they don't care. And so, what shall happen to Moab? What shall happen to Ammon? They shall become, Zephaniah says, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we don't have time because the sermon's already too long as it is. But we don't have time to get into the depths of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'd encourage you, if you'd like to read through it, uh, Genesis 18 and 19 gives us a picture of what's happening there. But Sodom and Gomorrah, their sin had become so great. We read, in, we read in Genesis 18 that there's an out, the outcry against Sodom was so great, their sin was so grave, the, the Genesis tells us, that those cries reached the Lord. Not that he has ears as we have ears, but, but the picture there is that everyone knew and saw and experienced just the wickedness that was there. It was spilling out everywhere. Everyone knew, and the Lord's like, I knew that. I know, I hear it, I see it, I know. And in chapter 19, Genesis tells us that the Lord himself rained down sulfur and fire on the city of Sodom. And in verse 28 of chapter 19 of Genesis, when Abraham, the next day, looks down into the valley, he sees smoke as if it came from a furnace. Literally, the Lord burned Sodom to the ground, lit them up as if they were the campfire for the rest of the region, the furnace for the rest of the area. It was just devastated. In fact, the ground and the earth itself was, was scorched with sulfur and with, with the ash. Can you imagine? It was uninhabitable and inhospitable for vegetation and for life for a generation. I mean, can you smell You know the smell of sulfur, that salty, burning, terrible smell that remains in your nostrils? And the entire city was devastated. Verse 9 says, as long as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. Is there any question about how God feels about Moab. And then in verse 10, it reminds us that God is not capricious. He's not bored, sitting up in heaven going, gee, I think I should destroy a city today. He's got good reason. Verse 10, this shall be their lot in return for their pride. (laughs) The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all their gods. And that's that's just a vivid picture. And then, it, as we said, look at the end of verse 9. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. Remember what I told you to save from verse 7. The Lord will restore the fortunes of his people. End of verse 7, end of verse 9. Set those aside, we'll come back to them. Put those in your save pile. To the west, destruction. To the east, destruction. To the south, verse 12. We only get one verse. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. We get one verse, but there's a lot in this little verse. The region of Cush was far to the south. Modern-day Sudan, modern-day Ethiopia, down in that area, south of the Red Sea. It's as if the Lord kind of draws a line from Jerusalem and then down through Egypt and kind of says, I'm just going to walk my judgment from Jerusalem straight down through Egypt all the way down through the entire land of Cush. And the Lord says this, you also shall be slain by my sword. Like the reference of an outstretched hand, this is the Lord's personal sword, if he had a literal sword to work with. This is his He, my sword, will do this. Now, we don't have much else outlined here, but the picture is one of swift and personal and intentional justice. To the west, to the east, to the south, this is deliberate and purposeful judgment. In verses 13 through 15, to the north, to the Assyrians. Verse 13, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Nineveh is the great city in Assyria. It's it's their big deal. It sits to the north and a bit to the east of Judah. Assyria was the nation that came in and destroyed the, the northern kingdom. Back in the time of Solomon, the kingdom was split north and south. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And a few generations previous, Assyria came in and took out the northern kingdom. So all that remains is Judah, where we are now. And although their status historically as a military power was waning at this time, they were still very likely Judah's most formidable threat was Assyria. Babylon is rising. It's just not there yet, but they will be. And if you remember, the prophet Jonah was sent to Nineveh. The Hebrew prophet was sent to a pagan people. Why? To extend to them the offer of God's mercy. Repent. Turn from your wickedness and your idol worship and your violence and turn to the Lord, the God of hosts, and he might relent and be merciful to you. And as we read in Jonah, what happens is they do. Much to Jonah's surprise. But they turn. Turn. They repent, at least for a while, but it didn't last. We see here that they remained confident in their wealth. They remained confident and happy in their luxury, in their security, in their self-sufficiency. And the Lord tells them, all of that which is beautiful among you will be laid bare. Your great city, Nineveh, will be taken over by herds of animals and wild beasts. We get pointed out to us owls and hedgehogs. Now, I know some of those are probably translation choices. Hedgehogs? The picture here, did anyone else find that funny? I read that. I'm like, did I read that right? Let me check another translation. Yeah? Hedgehog. Okay. Right, the picture here is you go from beautiful, advanced, Rich, wealthy, secure society, the great city will be turned into wilderness. Inhabited by creatures that live under logs and owls that live in trees. Like, all that was grand and powerful will be taken to nothing. That's the the extreme of the picture. Verse 14, the, the city's cedar work will be laid bare. Buildings of, of wealth were, were made and built with cedar beams. Uh, cedar is a beautiful looking, expensive, well weathering, lasts a long time building material. And so wealthy buildings and cities will be built with cedar. And the Lord says, even your beauty, the object of your wealth, the thing that makes, it, makes you prove how awesome you are, Will be rotting away and falling down. Verse fifteen. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, "I am," and there was no one else. What a desolation she has become! I mean, just picture that. In fact, in the case of Nineveh, this promise was fulfilled in short order. Roughly two hundred years after this prophecy was given in Zephaniah. Uh, other ancient historical records that we have, that other nations would come through this northern part of the area looking for evidence of the great city of Nineveh that once existed with almost no, very little archaeological evidence to be found that it ever existed at all. Within 200 years of this, God literally answered, fulfilled this promise by destroying and burying Nineveh in the sand. O. Palmer Robertson, in his commentary on Zephaniah, says this, wherever unrighteousness is found, it shall be punished. Wherever unrighteousness is found, it shall be punished. That's the picture here. All the way extending to the ends of the earth, And it all comes back to Jerusalem at the center. That's the picture here. And that goes on into chapter 3, unpacking the judgment again, the reminder of Jerusalem, don't get comfortable that I'm just talking about these outlying nations. I'm also talking about you. You're the city who accepts no correction. You're the one not trusting in the Lord. You're the one not drawing near to your God. Chapter 3, verse 2. And the question we started with is this. How do we feel about a God who punishes unrighteousness wherever it is? Are we repulsed because God seems like a big meanie? Are we relieved because clearly those people over there are being punished. Bad people, so that's too bad for them. How do you respond when justice happens to someone else? And how do we respond, how do you respond when you are called to account? See, the reality of the far-reaching justice and judgment of God may cause in us lots of reactions and maybe conflicting reactions. But I think it's designed by God to humble us, to remind us of God's holiness and also to give us hope. Here's, here's what I mean. I believe God's justice on display also shows his mercy on display. Here, there's two things that I think are pointed out here. One, there's mercy in God's warning. God could just rain down fire or, or, or send an invading army if, without warning. He doesn't need to like, give me a heads up. If I've displeased him, he can say, Jake, your time is now over. There's no right for my heart to keep beating. It could just stop. Same for any one of us. And yet, time and time again, God sends reminders. All throughout biblical history, He sends prophets. Why? To tell God's people, God is here. He's giving you an opportunity to turn to Him. Just lay down your idols. Lay down your selfishness and your pride. Over and over again in Israel's history, he, retur- he calls back to the people says, return to the Lord. Remember the covenant he's made with you. Remember the way he's rescued you from slavery. Remember the way he has rescued you from the, uh, uh, the death that was coming to you from other nations that were trying to destroy you. Remember when he called you back out? When he brought you back from captivity? When he restored your fortunes? They were just a few hundred years at the writing of this prophecy from King Solomon, as we mentioned earlier, and the breakdown of the kingdom. They saw it happen. It was close enough in history to them that their grandparents or their great-grandparents said, remember what happened when we were unfaithful to the Lord, when our leadership was unfaithful to God. The nation itself split, and even closer, they went into exile. Assyria came in and wiped them out. They themselves, Judah, had lived for years under terrible kings. Terrible, ungodly kings. And yet, and yet, to this point, they were still breathing. God had preserved Judah. And so over and over again, God sends warning. And this is no different. Hearing the reminder of God's holiness and how he deals with sin is in itself a mercy to anyone who has ears to hear. Remember verse 3 of chapter 2. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. I believe the warnings We see and hear from God are God's mercy to us. His warnings are merciful. Friends, for us, when before God spoke through the prophets to his people, he has now given us his word, spoken to us through his Son. And this, this scripture is filled with reminders of God's holiness, of his righteousness, of his goodness and of His promises. We are called over and over again in here, if we see ourselves as God's people, we're called to lay down our idols, to lay down our pride and our self-sufficiency, to turn away from those things, to repent, right? There's a warning in Scripture that says, the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6. That's a warning. God deals with and punishes sin, But it's merciful because it also reminds us that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God deals with sin. Ephesians chapter 2. We were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, while we were dead in our trespasses, Christ dies for us. Titus chapter 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 1 Peter 2 tells us that we were once not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Friends, God always deals with sin, and this warning is God's Mercy, because those who belong to Jesus, God has dealt with your sin in Him. There is mercy in the warning of God as, he re- as it relates to sin. And there is mercy in the promise of restoration. It's both. Remember I told you to hang on to, to save verse 7 and verse 9 from chapter 2? Verse 7. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Verse 9, The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. Even as God brings judgment, there is always, always, always promise of redemption, promise of restoration. God always preserves a remnant. It has happened every single time in the history of God's people in the Old Testament that God has fulfilled His promise and preserved a people out of destruction and has fulfilled His promise of restoring them every time. A remnant, this word remnant that we've used is a a small cut-off piece, right? You may have... uh, purchased a remnant of cloth or a remnant of carpet. It's a piece that was cut off from some other purpose, but has been preserved. That's the picture here. It's what, or in this case, who remains. They survive because the Lord preserves them. And every time When they're carried off into exile, when their land is destroyed, when their crops are destroyed, when their families are destroyed, when their very own lives are taken, in every instance, God preserves a remnant and restores his people. This promise of restoration that we see in Zephaniah really comes to life in chapter 3, which we'll get to next week. But the reminder here is that there is mercy in the promise of restoration. There is a future glory that always awaits God's people. Let me, um, let me just invite you to, to, if you want to, you don't have to close your eyes, but just listen to the verses, some of these verses from Psalm chapter 103 as a picture of what the Lord does in restoration. Restoration starting in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Talk of judgment and justice can seem heavy and harsh, but it's here and given to us in God's word to... to, To shake us of our own sense of self-sufficiency. To remind us that God is not slow to deal with sin. He's not slow to deal with wickedness. That He always does good. Always. And if we have eyes to see, my hope is that it causes us to examine, to put aside our pride, To not sound like the great city who is so comfortable in ourselves, whether that's uh, corporately, as a nation, or as a locality in our own city, or as a church, or us as individuals, that we would humble ourselves before the Lord. That the fear that we have wouldn't be a fear of punitive punishment, but of restorative discipline of the, the greatness and majesty and holiness of God. That we would put our hope in the truth that God is who He said He is. That He will do what He said He will do. That He is both just and merciful. And we get to taste a little bit of that in Jesus, here and now, where the justice and mercy of God meet. So let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of the Lord, and let's press forward with hope in the mercy of God in Jesus for us. You pray with me? Father, we thank You that You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I pray that the words of Psalm 103 would ring in our minds as we consider Your holiness, Your righteousness, the reality of our condition. Thank You that You you do not deal with us according to our sins because if you did we would be destroyed. You offer us this great mercy in Jesus. A kindness, an undeserved kindness that leads us to repentance. Would you give us eyes to see your compassion for us? Would that move our hearts to to break? And in our contrition, in our brokenness, in our confession, would we know the love and compassion of a Father who picks us up from our brokenness and welcomes us in as family. That we would know more deeply the love of God for us. And we would see your goodness on display. Work in our hearts even now, Holy Spirit that we might know with greater depth the love and forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.